On Pop Fiction Women, we explore what it means to be a complicated woman. Tired of endless variations of leading men next to one-dimensional archetypes of women or strong female leads written by men that were essentially guys in women's bodies. We started this show to highlight the many female characters in entertainment worth exploring, as well as the women who dreamt them up. And now we're adding those creators to our conversations, discussing their process and passion in bringing these women to life. Welcome to Complicated Conversations. On these episodes, there's no spoilers. So come on, it's starting. Today we're chatting with Julie Buxbaum. Julie is the New York Times bestselling author of Tell Me Three Things, her young adult debut, What to Say Next, Hope and Other Punchlines, and her new novel that we'll be talking about today is Admission. She's also the author of two critically acclaimed novels for adults, The Opposite of Love and After You. Just like us, she is a former lawyer and graduate of Harvard Law School. She lives in Los Angeles with her husband and two children, and she describes it with more books than is reasonable, mm-hmm. which we also love. Thank you so much for joining us today on Pop Fiction Women. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you guys. It's a big day. I don't know if you've seen the Red Table discussion. There's I have. more. Do you think it's- that was prompted by admission? <laughs> I do not believe it was prompted by admission. I believe she's talking tomorrow morning. So we'll get to okay. see the full interview. I've only seen excerpts. Yes, I've only, yeah. And I'm hesitant to talk about someone who is actually involved in sure. the case, but right. the little bits I've seen have been a little frustrating for me. Yes. I'll put it that way. Okay, mm-hmm. that's what I was going to say. I was not going to be as diplomatic, but let's move on to admission because we have a real character in this kind of scenario to talk about. You want to tell us a little bit about admission to start? Sure. It's a fictional take on the college admission scandal. So basically, my main character, Chloe Wynne-Berenger, seems to have her life fully in order. She just got into the college of her dreams. Her mom, who is a B-list actress, is on her way to the B-plus list. The boy she's had a crush on since middle school just asked her to prom. Things are like turning up roses until all of a sudden, one morning, the doorbell rings and the FBI is there to arrest her mother in a nationwide college admission scandal. It's fun and juicy, but it also deals with much larger themes of guilt and entitlement and privilege and what it means to be complicit. Yes. And we are going to talk about all of those things. You say in your author's note that when the college admission scandal broke, you became obsessed and that it set your imagination on fire. So much so that it caused you to cheat on the book you were writing to write this book. So I wanted to share, I actually remember when the college admission scandal broke as well. And I also read the 200 page complaint at the time. And not just because I'm a lawyer, I'll admit that what drew me in first was that there was a very prominent big law partner that was named as a conspirator in the complaint. And I was dying to read about him as the villain. But what I remember thinking after I read it, other than couldn't have happened to a nicer guy, was what about these kids? Like you, I thought, what must it feel like to know your parents thought that they needed to do that for you? But I also remember thinking like, come on, like they had to know, right? I thought new testing location, suddenly you have ADHD or whatever. But what I love about admission is that you don't shy away from those questions of culpability and who is complicit and when they knew. So through Chloe, I felt like 
I got a whole new perspective on this scandal and it really humanized the situation. So was it important for you to ask those questions, but not pass judgment when you were writing? Because I would assume it would be pretty tempting. Yes. I mean, the central question of the book is not, did they do it? Right? Like we know from pretty much page one that her mom is guilty. There's no doubt about that. The driving question of the book is how much did Chloe know and when did she know it? And I wanted to play with that gray area between knowing and not knowing or knowing but not wanting to know Mm -hmm. that I think so many of us have in our lives. Most of us, it's not about a college admission scandal, of course. Mm -hmm. But I do think there's these things that we lie to ourselves about because it's convenient to sort of forget especially when it comes to moments of privilege, right? The ways we are able to get ahead, it's way more comfortable to not question those things. So I definitely wanted to play in that playground. And then the question of Chloe as this central character who is a villain and also not a villain, I wanted her to travel along that arc Mm. where she starts out thinking, what's going on? I don't understand why everyone's mad at me to fully understanding that she is the villain in this story. Mm -hmm. That doesn't make her a villain for life, but yes, she was a villain in this story. As for passing judgment, that wasn't my job here. My job was to sort of understand. At no point in the book do I excuse what they did because Mm. clearly everyone in this situation is absolutely 100% fundamentally wrong. Right. right. I mean, there's no there's no room for discussion on that point. But there is room for discussion about why people would make these choices, how this happened, and what it's like for the kids who are right at the center. That's the part that set my mm. imagination on fire. Yeah. I've always been a very monogamous writer where I have one idea and run with it. And this is the first time I've ever cheated on a book and put it aside to write something else. And it was purely because everything I was reading, and I read everything you could possibly read, yeah. right? None of it satisfied me. Like they didn't tell me what I needed to know, which is like what it felt like to be at the very epicenter of this while Mm. being a kid at the same time and finding that the people you trust the most have led you so astray. Mm. Yeah, that is really interesting to me. And I wasn't captivated by this story, although I love anything ripped from the headlines, but I wasn't captivated on everything I was seeing was from the parents' point of view. And I'm like, I know why they did what they did. I know what they thought they could get away with. But turning it into Chloe's story is just the best way to come at it, the most intriguing way to come at it, I think. Thank you. So on this podcast, we talk about complicated women. Sometimes they're girls. But To us, that means real three-dimensional human beings. And you had said something at your launch event that Chloe is not very likable, maybe, and that readers might have a hard time with her. But you said that readers need to be more comfortable with complicated, difficult women. Obviously, we (laughs) love that. Can you talk more about that? And then also, what were your challenges writing Chloe? Did you feel like you wanted to. I know I'm always too nice to my characters. Like I want them to redeem themselves quicker or be better. And sometimes that's not, that's not the story. I have this frustration where I find that readers have a very limited stomach for complicated people, but complicated women in particular. Mm-hmm. Men are allowed to make mistakes and do things and boys are allowed to be terrible and still, you know, the hero of a story. But girls are not given that much freedom. And we have this problem, obviously, in life too, right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's it's yes. not just on the page. <laughs> yeah. And I find it's, it's women readers and men readers. It's, it's not just, you know, men readers who have this issue. No. There's a lot of internalized misogyny out there. Yes. And I find sometimes when people are criticizing a book, they will say, I did not like the main character. And to me, that is not a criticism of a book. That is an evaluation of how you felt about the main character. Mm-hmm. It doesn't tell you about the larger work and whether it was a satisfying piece. 
because I think the job of a reader is to understand the main character and mm. empathize with them maybe, but you don't have to like them, right? How many books do we read from the perspective of a serial killer? Yeah. We don't like them, yeah. <laughs> but we're fascinated by yes. them, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'm somewhat concerned that some of my readership will read Chloe and be like, oh, she's an entitled spoiled brat. Why should I spend 300 pages with her? And I think the reason why we should spend 300 pages with her is because she tells us so much more than just her story. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like this is a story about how we're raising a generation. Obviously, the college admission scandal takes us way over the line. So it exaggerates all these issues, but I'm a parent and I find ethical parenting truly difficult in this Mm. current society of like hyper competitiveness. And I think Chloe's story sort of tells us how we're, you know, helicopter parenting, but also snowplow parenting for our children. And there's real, real world consequences to that. To go back to, I think I've gone completely astray. No, (laughs) you have not. To go back to likability, we live in a complicated world where people have to make complicated choices and they're not always going to be the right one. And if they always make the right choice, that's not always so interesting. It's not. No, no. No. And what we love on this is when they make the wrong one, but we still relate to them nonetheless. I mean, that those are the characters that we love that aren't necessarily like us or likable. Or we often say too, we don't even agree, Corinne and I, on who's likable. Right? Right. It's not even, it's not a universal thing anyway. So it's, we're so fascinated, obviously, by this. And, and what you're saying really speaks to what we talk about on here all the time. And you, you've given us not just one complicated female in Chloe, but you give us her smart, feisty little sister, Isla, her all around amazing best friend, Shola, both of whom really act as a reflection for her to examine herself. And of course, you know, you give us her mother, who is a villain of the story, but you manage, in my view, to make relatable as a mother, as a woman who has had to fight to get where she is in life. And in the end, as a woman who has had to reckon with herself and, and has really changed. So I'm curious who you had the most fun writing of all these (laughs) well-drawn women and if any one of them is more like you or not. Because I have to say, I I am Isla. I feel like I felt like a real connection to her, but they were all so compelling. So I'm interested. Oh, it's so interesting. And I realized I didn't really answer the former question, which was whether I got frustrated with my characters and wanted them to develop faster. (laughs) And the answer is actually no. I don't want to spoil anything, but there was an ending that bumped up against certain readers. And I refused to sort of tidy it up more Uh because I felt like my main character did not deserve this perfect ending. Mm -hmm. I would have been frustrated if she developed too fast. Like she was coming from such a sort of overprivileged head in the clouds place that it wouldn't have made sense for her to suddenly wake up and be, you know, fully woke (laughs) by page 300. In terms of who's most like me, I mean, I was a super academic focused driven kid. Mm -hmm. So I'd have to say Chloe's sister, Isla. I mean, I think that's- Oh, I'm saying it wrong. Isla. Okay. Sorry. It it truly does not matter. (laughs) Admission is the first book I've written that doesn't have a central love story, but I do think it does have this platonic sisterly love story at Mm -hmm. its heart. And Mm -hmm. so I think their relationship was my favorite thing to write more than any character. The mom- It was really important for me to tell a story of a loving family, a broken one, yes, a completely misguided one, clearly. But at the heart, they still love each other. And the mom is a villain, but she's also very much a loving mother who believes, at least in the beginning, that she's doing the right thing for her kids. Yeah. So I do want to switch gears just for a second to your publishing journey. 
as you know from my super fan email to you requesting this interview, I've been a huge fan since your first novel, The Opposite of Love. Oh, you're welcome, which was an adult novel. Like me, your protagonist there, Emily, was a litigator in big law, also like you, and Corinne here, actually. So I really related to that character. And your second adult novel, After You, reminded me of my favorite classic, The Secret Garden which I saw you had a little Easter egg in there. You, in this book, you mentioned The Secret Garden. I saw that. <laughs> Love that. Yeah, and I reread it again at the time, thanks to you. But after those two adult novels, you made the switch to YA, a transition that many of your fans, like myself, happily stayed with you for. So I'd love to hear about that shift and whether you think YA is your forever home. I don't think YA is my forever home. Oh, I mean, I love YA and I have another book that I've just finished a draft of that hopefully will be out in 2022. So I'm not leaving YA anytime soon. And I do believe I'll probably continue to publish YA, but I do miss the adult world also. Mm -hmm. And so I might find I dip back into that. The reason why I set out to write YA, I've told the story a gazillion times, so I, I forgive me if I'm repeating myself if you've seen or listened to me before. But when I was a lawyer... And when I was first starting my writing career, when I first became an adult, or maybe actually for like 15 years as an adult, (laughs) it was a very long time, I didn't actually feel like an adult, right? Like I felt like I was playing one on TV. There was this sort of feeling of when I went to work, I put on this certain persona, and then I came home and ripped off my mask. And then I was like, you know, 16-year-old me again, just pretending, swimming in these deep waters that I didn't know how to swim in. And then years went by, I lived in London and New York, and then London, New York, LA, and I moved a ton. And I found myself living in LA. I was married, my husband and I bought a house. I had my second child, I was on the PTA. And I looked around and I was like, I am adulting as hard as a person can adult. Like, (laughs) this is it. (laughs) Like, I don't know who I'm fooling anymore. I am. I can't deny this. Yes, there's no denying. When you're sitting at a PTA meeting, (laughs) there's no denying (laughs) that you're the grown up. Right. It became very clear to me that like, oh, I I have grown up now and I know where my life is going in most ways. But in order for my life to change fundamentally, something really horrible would have to happen. I know who my children are. I know my husband. And instead of like the realization of suddenly being an adult, being a comforting one, which you think it would be after years of feeling like, you know, imposter syndrome, it was the exact opposite. I was so sad. Yeah, I missed not knowing anything, like not knowing my future and who would I fall in love with and where I'd live and all those sort of bigger life questions. And so YA was my opportunity to go back and sort of feel those feelings, you know, first love and first loss and sort of the expansiveness of the world. I miss that. Yeah. And I do find YA to be a really useful place because it's such a rich, interesting time in everyone's personal history. Mm -hmm. And I think it sort of sears in a way that other periods of time or transitions don't as much. Like my transition into parenthood was a huge turning point for me personally. And yet I have no memories of it. (laughs) It's this huge void. But being 16... And having yeah. my first crush or, you know, first like kisses and all that stuff. Oh, my God. Yeah. I can jump yeah. right back there so easily. Yeah. Yeah. That's so funny. Yeah. So Me too. I don't know. I just don't know if that itch to discuss this period of life will last forever. Yeah. And I think I might, like with anything else, I think there's seasons, right? And so for right now, it's fascinating to me. But I also do miss exploring, you know, more adult stuff. And so I think I will dip my toes back into the adult world soon. 
That's exciting. Yeah, that's exciting. And what do you think you're being pulled to like look at there in the adult space without giving anything away? Just do you? I'm not. I think sort of the new questions I'm asking now, right? Mm -hmm. Now that I am a grown up and now that I'm guiding a younger generation, what does that mean? What does that responsibility look like? What kind of world am I leaving them, first of all, which Mm -hmm. is horrifying right now. And I think the complicated emotions of being a woman in my 40s. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've seen a lot of great books about this, but I do think there is this shift that happens where you become a little bit more invisible in the world, yeah. but also more powerful within. Mm-hmm. And those two things clashing and coming up at the same time is really fascinating to me. Oh, I don't yes. have any sort of big adult idea right now. Yeah, okay. well, I'd be lying if I was like, I'm writing the secret book on the side. Okay. <laughs> no. But those are some good seeds to start yeah. with. Yeah. There's some stirring going on. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Well, I certainly relate to the idea of the realization that I was an adult, which I had dreamed of for so long, then being there and being like, oh, is this it? This is all, this is, this is it. It's all locked in. But I'm constantly fighting it. We move a lot too. We, we lived in LA for a while, a couple of years ago, and I actually saw you at Y'all West. Awesome. That was my first introduction to you and you blew me away. You told the story and I'm hoping you'll remember it because, but I have a question if you don't, but. <laughs> It was something about like the rough transition between law and writing. I remember London. I remember a Starbucks bathroom, maybe a baby. Right. Okay, good. Okay. I don't know. I, it's one of those stories that was so, again, more like new motherhood, just seared into me on a, an emotional level, but I don't remember the details. So, but is it has to do with the transition from, from writing to, from law it to does. writing? It does. It does. So awesome. I had written two adult books. And I was writing my third just after my daughter was born. And I was living in London at the time. My mother-in-law was my childcare. So she would come every single day and take care of my very fresh baby. I think I started working maybe at 10 weeks, which was so American of me and very not British. Yes, that's right. And I would go to the local Starbucks and write every single day. And they had the most awful bathroom. I mean, it was just like a disgusting London rainy, muddy bathroom floor. And I used to remember like, do I take my laptop? Do I leave my laptop? My laptop's going to get stolen. It was just like, it was this very weird cloudy time of sleep deprivation and writing and leaving my child. And I spent, I think two years of my life working on a book that just wasn't good enough. Mm-hmm. And it was a perfectly competently written book. Of <laughs> <laughs> course it was. <laughs> like it checked all the boxes of a book. Yeah. And my editor was sort of like, we can work on this. We can get this to where it needs to be. But I could tell she didn't have sort of that real passion for it. Mm-hmm. And I was also just wiped out from it. When I write a book, it's not only to have a book to hand to you know, it's the public. It's to have a book that you're going to say, you have to read this to your best friend, right? And this book wasn't that book. It wasn't going to be something that that people were going to fall in love with. They'd read it and then forget it. Yeah, And that didn't feel good enough to me. So that book lives in a drawer. And the next book I wrote was YA. They're somewhat connected. I mean, there were some years in between where I had my second kid and we moved and I did some screenwriting stuff and, you know, did other things. Mm -hmm. But the book in the drawer sort of reminded me that I write better, first of all, when I'm happy. Mm. Those first two years when my daughter was born, I hate to say, I had a a lot of postpartum anxiety Mm -hmm. and a little depression and it it was dark. It was winter in London and it gets dark at four o'clock. And I remember just, it was just a really, really tough transition into motherhood for me. 
I wrote Tell Me Three Things, I think, just after my son was born. And that was a fundamentally different experience, even mm. though he was a much worse baby. <laughs> 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 he was a nightmare baby. Yeah. But I, I had come into my own as a mother and yes. sort of didn't have that same anxiety. I knew I was capable of doing this. And I also knew there was an end where eventually I would get a night's sleep, yes. which you don't know the first time no, around. No, it doesn't feel <laughs> like that's ever coming. No. You feel like you're never going to feel like yourself again. Yeah. It can't possibly. It's just taken years off of your life and it's over. But yeah, exactly. miraculously it does. And then the second time you're like, okay, I know that it will come to some semblance of yes. myself, maybe right. a different form. That's right. My brain at least will get clear again. Yeah. Yeah. Anyhow, so that I think that's the story you wanted me to tell. Yes. 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 Okay. Yes. <laughs> so that kind of tells your transition from the adult novels to the young adult. I mean, I'm still curious, of course, as the one practicing law, how you made the transition from your legal career working in big law to taking the leap into writing your first novel. So that is a really banana story. Um, oh, good. Banana <laughs> we like stories. that. So I had worked at a really large law firm and then I moved to a much smaller law firm thinking that I would like the law better and I was no happier. I mean, I was working really long hours at both, but it wasn't the long hours. I mean, I'm a hard worker. I like to work long hours. Well, I mean, I don't like to work <laughs> long hours. So I'm like, kidding. But I, but I, comfortable. That, I'm comfortable working long yeah. hours, but I was bored. I was really soul crushingly bored. Yes. And on Sunday nights, I used to have, I used to cry about going to work on Monday morning. Mm. So as part of a New Year's resolution, I think like 15 years ago, I decided to quit my job. I didn't know what I was going to do next. All I knew is that on my bucket list of life things was to write a novel. So I figured I'd take, you know, six months off, write a novel, and then figure out what I wanted to do with my life and what kind of lawyer I should be. Mm. And I remember sending out all these sort of very random emails to all sorts of people being like, oh, you work at adoption law. Will you talk to me about that? You know, like everything else, like just trying to figure out if there was some other kind of law that spoke to my soul. Mm -hmm. So I quit my job. I like, it was, I think it was like January 3rd that I walked into the, you know, the head partner's office and quit my job. And then I sat down to write like a week later. And within like a week, there was just something so natural and organic about writing for mm -hmm. me. That it was like, oh, this right. is what it's I want to do. It's not the type of law. Yes, that's like, the it, problem. This is it. This is it, right? There was this other calling yeah. that I didn't know. I had never really felt like I was. A, I never identified as a writer in any way. I didn't mm. even study English in college. Yeah. Reading was something I loved, but writing was just something I did. I mm. guess mm -hmm. it wasn't even a hobby. I don't know. It right. was just sort of this thing that I always knew I wanted to do. So I started writing, and it felt really natural and wonderful. But it still didn't occur to me that I could, you know, become a writer. It doesn't really work that way, right? Right. And then I got just supremely, absurdly, ridiculously lucky. I wrote a draft of my first book and then edited. I took some classes at UCLA at night, like writing classes. And when a book felt like it was in a place to actually send out, I found an agent relatively quickly. And then my agent very quickly sold it in a two-book deal to Random House. And I found like the perfect editor who understood the book, who had also lost their mom young mm -hmm. and like completely and totally related to the story I was telling. It was like this magical moment where mm -hmm. these, like I found these two fairy godmothers, essentially, mm -hmm. my agent and my editor who came together and handed me a career, essentially. And it's the weirdest way to go become a writer. I 
people ask me all the time, like, should I quit my job and write a book? And I'm like, no, (laughs) this is the stupidest thing I've ever done in my life. Truly the stupidest thing I've ever done in my life. And yet it ended up being the best decision I ever made. Yeah. But it was very, very, very stupid. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. I say something similar. It wasn't really a choice for me to keep working. It was just too soul crushing. And I had just had to figure out something else. And I did. I've, I've gone back in many different iterations to see if something else fit a little better, but it was just too soul crushing. It was never like a, should I, should I go be a writer? It was just, I can't do this anymore. It's killing yeah. me. Yeah. I mean, I think, I do believe there is a version of a lawyer out there for me. Like I, I do believe there's another life I could have led yeah. that I would have been happy as a lawyer. I definitely made a mistake leaving law school to go the big law route. I was mm. seduced by the salary. Sure, of course. Of it. Yeah. I should have gone into public interest law. Mm. I think I would have really loved it and felt fulfilled. Yeah. Or maybe became a law professor. I don't mm. know. Yeah. yeah. It's hard though. You know, there's loans, there's the, the you're right, seduced by the, the salary and you've worked that hard and you probably did well. So then everyone tells you, you know, then you should go get the best, go right. to big law. And right. it's, it happens to many of us. Yes. Um, and I, I mean, I think it also goes back to that feeling of wanting to feel like a grown up. Yeah. Like oh, there's yeah. something like a big salary in a big city, which makes mm-hmm. you feel like, oh, I've arrived, right? Yeah. Ironically, it did not make me feel like a grown up in any way. No. But I think that was part of the hope when I signed up. I remember starting at a big law firm too and being like, oh, wait. Not only am I not a grown up, there's none here. <laughs> Where are they? <laughs> I don't they're all acting like not how I think they're supposed to be acting. Oh yeah. my gosh. Exactly. So true. Yeah. Where are uh, the role models? Yeah. 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 We talked firm. about that with Erica Katz. Have you read the Boys Club that she wrote? It's about big law. You it's it's so great. It's a page turner. And having experienced it, you would you would find it interesting. Oh, I'll check it out. At your book launch, the virtual launch for admission, you talked about the writer's subconscious and what a weird and scary place it is. I thought that was so interesting. You mentioned a scene between your characters and what to say next, that that it mirrored the moment you met your husband and you hadn't even realized it till much later. And I wrote a novel a few years back, which I knew had like some semi-autobiographical elements in it. But then like about a year ago, I was coming to grips with some pretty big things in my personal life. And I had this moment where I was like, oh my God, I wrote about this. Like that was my novel. That's what it was about. So for me, it was like I wrote my own story before I even knew it was happening. It was just really wild. Yeah. It happens. It's really weird. Sorry, yeah. I, I didn't know if there was a... Yeah, no, yeah, correct. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, and we've talked to Christina Baker-Klein and Rebecca Searle both said how they essentially write the same book or they're interested in exploring the same themes over and over. And But they didn't even know it, right? <laughs> no, exactly, without even knowing it. So do you have that experience too because you've written so many books? and Absolutely. I mean, I'm doing this Insta Live series where I did interview Christina Baker-Klein, who I adore. Mm. I know. And I ask every single writer I speak to, what is the thematic through line through your work? Because I believe that's the thing we should be talking to our therapists about, right? (laughs) Yes, completely. For me, with each book, I have a different thematic question that I'm asking. Most of the time, I am able to articulate it. But sometimes later, I understand why I actually was questioning that or why I wrote the book. Like in After You, for example, the fundamental question is, how well do you know the people you love? Mm -hmm. Looking back, I wrote that book when my husband proposed to me. And I was sort of suddenly preoccupied with like, even though I had been dating this man for eight years, did I actually know him? Mm -hmm. And did I know what how he thinks and 
like how his brain works and how he spends most of his days because I'm not with him 24 hours a day. And I became fundamentally preoccupied with that without realizing I was preoccupied with that, right? Mm-hmm. And so I wrote this whole book that is a totally different exploration. It's about a woman who moves to London and steps into her best friend's life after her best friend is murdered. Obviously, the circumstances are fundamentally right. different than what I was going through. But it's the same question, right? Like she wanted to see the truth behind her friend. And I wanted to understand the truth behind my husband. Honestly, we've been now it's we're together now 20 years and I still don't understand him at all. (laughs) (laughs) That question has not been answered in any way. Or or it's answered in the affirmative. No, or no, 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 you do not know him. (laughs) You can never know. Yes. So I think, but as for a, a full through line, I think my first four books were very much about grief Mm. and loss and sort of rebuilding yourself in the wake of loss. My last two books, I think, are also about rebuilding yourself in the wake of some sort of trauma. But I think I'm fundamentally interested in the way our lives shift and shift quickly and what it's like to like wake up in one world and go to sleep in another. Hmm. Whether that's the world in which, you know, your mom is alive in the morning and your mom is dead by the afternoon Hmm. or a world of a 9-11 or Hmm. in this case, you know, someone knocking on your door and it's the FBI and your entire world shifts. Hmm. But I think I'm interested in those shifts and how they impact who we become. Though I do think there are questions buried in each book that solely belong to those books. Right. And solely tell the story of my life. And I, and one day I will go and like weave them through, but it's hard to know in the moment, like hope and other punchlines. I realized when I wrote it was a hundred percent me trying to understand the Trump era, even though Mm. there's nothing Trump related in the book, but it was me wanting to know that we'd be okay in the way that in the wake of nine 11, a lot of people obviously were not okay, but we've gotten to a place where we, you know, we've moved forward as a society with huge lasting impacts, of course. I I was sort of looking back at this other moment, this big social, horrible moment in history when I felt like I couldn't imagine what the world was going to look like again, in much the way I felt in the Trump era. This was even pre-pandemic. So I think that's where that book came from. But I didn't know that when I was writing it. I only knew it like maybe a month or two ago. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's what I was thinking about. Or maybe it was more than a month or two ago. What is time anymore, guys? (laughs) Who knows? That's really some deep subconscious yes. work and, going and on it, there. Yeah, and I think admission, and maybe I'm wrong, and maybe in a year I will realize it's a fundamentally different question I was worried about. But I think it's really, for me, about I wanted to know how to be an ethical parent. I've had all these moments where I've had to sort of choose the right path for my kid and me as a parent that feels fundamentally at odds with being a good parent and being a good member of society. Mm. And how do you navigate those weird gray areas? The story I tend to tell is about the time my daughter had lice in kindergarten. And I can't remember I told this story at the launch, but the school was supposed to send out an email to everybody letting them know that there was a kid in the class who has lice. And they usually do it anonymously so you don't have to be embarrassed. Mm -hmm. I let the school know and they never sent out that email. Now, as a mom, I know that if a kid in the class has lice, you want to know. So you send your kid in braids. Yes, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> like you don't want to catch it. And so the answer is you put your kid in braids and then no one gets it. Yeah. So I felt an obligation to let the whole class know that my kid had lice. And I sent this email and I was like, I'm so embarrassed, but you know, it's lice, it happens. And you know, sure. just 
braid your kid's hair. Yeah. And my daughter came home from school crying because someone oh. in the class made fun of her oh. for having lice. No. Right. Oh. Obviously, I made the right choice. <laughs> you know, I did the right thing. I yes. think mm-hmm. more ironic, the school sent out an email the next day. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Just to pile on. <laughs> Just to pile on. But it was also two days late. Because right. Yeah. They needed to let them know a day earlier. But I feel like there are a million things like that where the sort of competitive spirit rears its ugly head, where people look out for their kid at the expense of the greater good, when we're, we're really supposed to be a village, right? Yeah. And pitting ourselves against the village doesn't work. No. But we built this society in which we're pitting our kids against the village. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I think admission is my examination of that and trying to figure out how to be a good parent in these sort of deeper waters. I mean, I can think of a yeah. gazillion examples. Yes. Like, like my daughter in third grade came home and had to do a diorama and I refused to do the diorama for her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I, this was not my assignment. It was yeah, her assignment. Nope. I got her all the materials. I talked through it. I helped, yeah. but I was not going to make it beautiful and perfect. Yeah. She came home crying oh. <laughs> because everyone else, you know, their parents all made yeah. the dioramas and hers didn't have electricity or right. whatever. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> This is every science fair for my children every year. My children aren't interested. I refuse to help. To your point, this is not my assignment. And every year we have the worst science fair (laughs) poster boards of all time. And now my kids kind of laugh. I'm like, because I'm not doing that. But you're right. It's clear that some people got some help. And I'm not teaching the lesson that they need me to do it. No, They can do it on their own. I'm the same way. And I tell my kids, I'm like, that person didn't do it. Their parent did it. So, uh, you know, if you want to go live with them, Maybe they'll do your diorama too. Yep. (laughs) Yeah, but we have to teach them how to be in the world, not just themselves, but in the world. And this is the way the world is. And and how can you negotiate it by doing well for yourself, but also being part of it? I mean, I think they're also getting the lesson from the world that everyone else's mom is helping. Yeah. Yes. And so there's this interesting dichotomy where you have those parents are teaching their kids that they're entitled to get the grade no matter what. And also they're incapable of getting the grade themselves. Mm -hmm. And those are two conflicting messages. Yeah, I'm teaching my kids that they're capable of doing whatever they can do to should do their best, but they might come home with a lower grade because of it. (laughs) Like there are consequences. And I don't know how they see me as a mom versus the other mom. Like, I don't know if if it's a point against me for not helping, I think when they're grown up, they will yeah. understand exactly what I was doing. Yeah. But right now, you know, their diorama doesn't look as nice. Yeah. yeah and yeah. all of those issues are are explored in this book too. So I have to shift gears completely now. I'm going to oh, tie it to something you said. Yeah. But, back, yeah. Go ahead. Back yeah, to the I am, but yeah. really, ultimately it's our favorite question, but You did say that, I think it was at your launch, that you get a tickling in your spine when you have a good idea, like a weird physical reaction. And when we did talk to Christina Baker-Klein, she called it a spidey sense. We talked to her about this idea that creativity and writing are really intuitive pursuits, you know, not necessarily intellectual. So this tickling in your spine to us rings a little bit like the universe speaking to you, linked maybe to like fate and destiny, like concepts that we struggle with, with our logical lawyer brains, but that we totally embrace as writers. And then in your book, you have these references to vision boards Lots of them. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if, you know, this manifesting your dreams and means that you do embrace your woo-woo side because the way we do it here at Pop Fiction Women is through astrology. Oh, interesting. Yes. And so we ask all our authors, what is their sign and do you relate to it? 
Okay, so I am a Gemini. Oh, yay. Twins. Yes. Yes, my husband. And do I relate to it? Sometimes. I mean, I do think there are these, I am very passive aggressive. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe in that sense, there are these two different sides of me. I like how you said I relate to it sometimes. That's a very Gemini thing to say. (laughs) My husband is a Gemini and he is equally skeptical, but I find our relationship, I am like the hopeful optimist all the time and he's just got the perfect amount of skepticism and we just work really well together. So I I love that healthy dose. I don't know if this is a Gemini characteristic, but I definitely am incredibly indecisive. Mm-hmm. And I go back and forth. You're of two minds. I'm of two yeah. minds about everything. And I'm able to articulate the two minds mm-hmm. at the same time, which I find really difficult and frustrating to live in my head. Yeah. yeah. I, <laughs> but as the lawyer too, because I mean, we're trained to see both sides of things. It's a, it's a great trait in a lot of ways because yeah. I'm sure it helps with your writing too, to be able to see every different angle. But Yes, in your life, I can see that can be. Yeah, it's like Julie, just pick the rice checks. It doesn't have to be. You have cinnamon and regular. It's not going to make a huge difference. And then I could stand in the aisle for two hours, like being like, "But that has a gram more sugar." And I feel like one kid likes cinnamon, the other doesn't. Right. I do get tripped up over very small, um, minor things. I am not that woo-woo. Generally, I do not have vision boards. Oh, you don't. And I'm not a huge believer in manifestations. Like, I don't believe if you like want something bad enough, it'll come. I feel like that's sort of part of the reason is I think it obliterates the idea that we live in a world of privilege mm. that makes it easier for some people to manifest things, right? Yes. I feel like it's unfair to discount that part of things. But the spidey sense, it's uh, Christine is a friend of mine and I love her dearly. And she is the only other writer I've ever spoken to who also gets like the physical feeling. And we've talked about it before. Mm -hmm. I I kind of feel like it's my subconscious and my body telling me this is a path you want to go on. Mm -hmm. And maybe it is a message from the universe. I don't know. I feel like the universe is probably bigger fish to fry than Michael Uh, These yeah. days in 2020, that is very true. I feel like the universe is very busy. Yeah. <laughs> very. It has a lot of stuff to do. And me, you know, deciding to write about the college admission scandal is not on its to-do list. <laughs> yes. right. Oh, oh, give her that tingly sense right now. Yeah. Check. Yeah, but I do think there is something going on in my subconscious that's like ding ding ding, you are fascinated enough with this that it can carry you through an entire book. Yes. Right. Writing a novel is a marathon. It's a real slog and you have to be willing to go on that slog or through that slog or yeah. I don't know what you do to a slog. Reckon with it. Not the slog. Uh, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. It's gotta carry you through. I was going to say something else, but I forgot. Oh, do you feel in LA that you're just constantly bombarded with the woo-woo, like crystals on the street and at every cafe and people renaming themselves? And I mean, I kind of love it. Yeah. I, and I love sort of the intersection. I'm fascinated by the intersection of woo-woo and wellness and self-care. Yeah. I find it so interesting. And so I, I do enjoy going to Erewhon, which is this, mm-hmm. you know, super fancy, not even fancy, but like organic, overpriced. <laughs> overpriced, organic place and seeing the most beautiful people you'll ever see in yeah. your life buying green juice and taking turmeric shots. It's so funny. I go there and I see it. And my first instinct is like, ha ha, they really think this shot of turmeric is going to change their lives. And then I look at how like they're glowing with health. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, 
maybe I should buy the Turbo <laughs> Like maybe that's where I've gone wrong. <laughs> it's, it's not the fact that they're in the gym all day. That's right. not where I've gone right. wrong. It's, yeah. it's the turmeric shot, clearly. Yes. And, then I'll, and then I'll pay 12 bucks for a turmeric shot when really I should just eat my mother-in-law's Indian cooking. And there I'll get you go. The She's probably filled with that. So. Yes, exactly. You know, and actually Christina Baker Klein, we keep talking about her, but she didn't like the word woo-woo either. She was like inner goddess. Inner goddess. And I was like, (laughs) yes, we should be framing it that way. I mean, it makes it sound so much. Yeah, I think she said the divine feminine. She had much better words. We were like, look, we're just starting on this woo-woo path. We are lawyers. Yeah, We're very type A. Yeah, we're just trying to get over a little. (laughs) I feel like there's two different things. I mean, there's like the woo-woo where it's like not based in science. Right. Yeah. But I also believe in intuition. Mm-hmm. That's what she, yeah, that's what she's yeah. saying, more the intuitive pursuit. So we got all our good words from her. Yeah. I get all my good stuff from her. Somebody had a vision board, Corinne. I think it was Tia Williams. Yes, we she did. And her book is being adapted, right, by Gabrielle Union. Yes. And on her vision board, she had Gabrielle Union God as the main character. Of Gabrielle Union as the main character. Yeah. So and it happened like two maybe years later. Sell me on these. I don't know. Listen, I could. Uh, we all could use all the help we could get. <laughs> I was thinking how many times a vision board is referenced in admission. I was like, she's either going to say she lives by them or she laughs at them. That's <laughs> very LA. Yeah. I had fun playing in this sort of celebrity LA world, which is a huge part of where I live. And yet I do not live in that world. Yeah. You, mm-hmm. So I have fun observing it. From the outside. Yes. Yeah. I, but the vision board thing, I don't know. What would I, right now, the only thing I'd put on my vision board really is a school. Yeah. That my kids could go to. <laughs> yes. And like a big X in front of a computer. <laughs> like, like, that's all I want. Well, thank you so much. Our last question, we would just want to ask I you. I also say I want yes. the world also to heal. And I, I realize it's not about my kids' school. I realize they're much bigger. Yes. Thing. Sorry. I just felt like that came out so unempathetic to no. the, the larger stuff going on. Yes. No, we, I appreciate that. Uh, but we are just having fun a little bit here. Okay. So yes. yes. <laughs> yes. Clear. We want to ask you what you're loving right now. TV, books, movies, music that you're really loving. Although I saw your tweet about Ted Lasso. That's what I was going to say. Ted La- I oh, saw that. I love that. I loved oh, Ted Lasso. Mm-hmm. And here's why. First of all, I'm in a moment right now because of sort of this darker world and where things are really hard for so many people. I can only handle happy things. Yes. Or things that celebrate joy or goodness. I have no room in myself right now for the sad, the dark, the hurtful. Mm. And what I love about Tao Lasso, it has such a like an optimism baked in. And it keeps that optimism through every episode, even though it does have up and downs as a plot, right? Mm -hmm. And to keep that sort of joy throughout, even at the dark moments, I don't know, it's so hard to pull off. And it 100% pulls it off with really complicated, dynamic, interesting characters. I loved every second of it. We are there with you with the flight attendant. Oh, interesting. Is it joyful? I haven't watched it It's about a murder. Okay. And a gruesome murder. But there is something so optimistic and lighthearted and it's got some you know comedic moments it's just that perfect blend for right now yeah Yeah. although if you like ted lasso's jason sudeikis if you like him have you seen sleeping with other people i mean that's one of our favorites it's with him and allison brie so if you like him and you need a little more of him it's a rom-com but it's great Um, yes yes then you You've got it. That Corinne turned me on to that and we covered it on here. And and I just it's 
Whenever anyone says they like Jason Sudeikis, I'm like, have you seen Sleeping with Other People? Oh, love him. I feel like I might have seen it, but I can't remember. It I'll have to watch it again. Like five or six years ago, maybe? I remember what it is. I mean, I remember the, the idea is that neither of them are interested in a real relationship. Is that? I think it's supposed to be like a modern When Harry Met Sally. I think she okay. said When Harry Met Sally with two assholes. For assholes. Yeah. For assholes. <laughs> yeah. Like a sex support group. They're both trying not to have as much sex. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it's funny. So though, they decide that- to abstain and then yeah. just be friends and then their friendship grows. And Oh, it's I a, have to see it. It's a wonderful a, movie. I am a rom-com, like true rom-com junkie. Yeah. But the thing I liked about Ted Lasso is I feel like there's this underlying ethos that every character is trying their best. Mm. A lot of the characters, their best isn't good enough. Yeah. And there's a sense of forgiveness throughout and giving people the benefit of the doubt and also celebrating earnestness. Mm. I'm a Xennial, I think it's called, like the Gen X millennial mm-hmm. line. And I feel like, especially Gen Xers, like we were taught to look down on everything, right? Mm-hmm. You like to have this sort of distaste for the earnest. Mm-hmm. And as someone who is like ridiculously obnoxiously earnest, I love the celebration that it's not bad to like unabashedly like things yeah. and to try and be like a decent person in the world. That's, I mean, it's uncool maybe, but it's not bad. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Ted Lasso. That's oh, my recommendation. I love that. We talked about that with Lady Bird too. Greta Gerwig said, you know what? I just like it because I like it. She got a lot of gruff for putting Dave Matthews band Crash in her movie. And they're like, that's not she cool. Said, I like what I like. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It was- yeah, I'm trying really right. hard to teach my daughter that she's 10 and going through that phase of like, you know, passing judgment on things because mm. you're and like, and, and trying to see what you like and how it defines you. Mm. And I always tell her, don't yuck someone else's yum, mm. <laughs> which is such a basic, silly way to put it. But for example, I love romance novels. Yeah. Like I truly, and I love rom-coms yeah. and I also love super complicated literary novels. Right. And I love both. country music yes. and I Absolutely. refuse to apologize for it. Okay. And some country music is amazingly fantastic and complicated and interesting. Exactly. And some, yes, is about tractors and beer, but yes, there's something for There's everyone. both. Yes. There's always there's both. both. Yeah. And if you look at, sorry to go off on a tangent, but if you look at history, the things that women have traditionally liked are looked down upon as the fluff. Mm-hmm. Like romance is less important of subject than war, yeah. for example. But they're not. They're, yeah. I mean, at our at the heart of our lives is family, right? Yeah. And so why do we look down upon novels about the family when they're written by women versus novels about war? Like they're equally important in society. And so, yeah. Sorry. Uh, I, no, I we, oh, listen, one of our little mottos and taglines is that we take the subversive act of taking women seriously. And, exactly. and we do it in fun things too. It's not just like it can only be taken seriously if the woman acts like a man and, and does this literary endeavor. No, let's like, let's take rom-com. Let's take Harry and Sally and talk about them seriously. And that's what we do. So exactly. we're on, yeah, we're on the same yeah. page. I mean, look, my book has a pink cover. It's fun and juicy, absolutely. But it also deals with these much larger issues. Yeah. And the pink cover is not in conflict with that in no. any way. No, no, no. That's, it's not. I love the cover. Yeah. I do too. Yeah, well, they did a great job. Yes. I'm going to put it with all your others up on my on my shelf. <laughs> Thank you so much. And you have to tell everyone where they can find you, yes. like on social media. Okay, you can website. find me. I spend way too much time on Twitter at, at Julie Bucks. Lately, I've been doing this Instagram series at, at Julie Bucks Baum on there, where I'm interviewing a ton of writers. And if you're an aspiring writer, I highly recommend checking them out because there's like these 10 minute bite-sized information and goodness, like writerly advice. And Facebook, 
I'm there too somewhere. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I'm kind of over Facebook. Me but too. Yeah. Julie Buxbaum novelist, I think is what I am on Facebook. Well, thank you so much for talking to us. Admission is out now. If you don't have your copy, well, I don't know what you're waiting for. Thank you so much. <laughs> no, this has been you. so much fun. I could have talked to you guys all day. We want to let you know we've launched a Patreon page where supporters can receive perks like bonus episodes and exclusive content. Because Pop Fiction Women is our passion project, a place where we give women space to show up and offer in-depth analysis in the ways we're used to hearing about male creators and their characters. We delve into creativity and psychology with a dash of astrology, and we have so much fun doing it. Just two friends breaking down books, movies, and shows like Normal People, Fleabag, and I May Destroy You. Every single aspect of this podcast we do ourselves, from the preparation to the recording, from the editing to the social media promotion. So we're adding a Patreon platform because we want to keep making the show you love and hopefully expand it even further. So please consider becoming one of our most complicated fans and contributing on Patreon. To learn more, go to patreon.com forward slash pop fiction women. This has been Pop Fiction Women with Corinne and Kate. If you enjoyed this show, please tell the complicated women in your life. And the men who love them. Yes, tell them to listen. And then to follow on Spotify or review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And of course, share on social media. Tag us with your favorite books, TV shows, and movies starring complicated women on Facebook and Instagram at popfictionwomen.com or on Twitter at pop underscore women. For more coverage of the women you love, or to find out if you qualify as a complicated woman, go to popfictionwomen.com. And keep it complicated. <laughs>